Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello, friends, wherever you're listening from, which is probably some form of isolation. And if you're not, you should be. It's funny how adaptable humans are to very stern directives to change our behaviour. It's almost as if we could have tackled sexism a long time ago if people cared enough about women to try. But leaving that aside, it's time for your weekly dose of big sisterly advice here at the Big Sister Hotline with me, Clementine Ford. We're all feeling particularly tender and anxious this week. Our world is changing rapidly and while it's been so gratifying to see the tenacity of the human spirit and the strength of human kindness, I'd be lying if I said I'm not also on a roller coaster of emotions. Luckily, my guest this week is the perfect big sister to discuss all of these issues with. Alice Robinson is the author of two exceptional novels, the most recent of which won the 2019 Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction. The Glad Shout offered a terrifying glimpse at a Melbourne some decades into the future after catastrophic climate destruction has destroyed the fabric of society as we know it. Just some lighthearted reading for you during the corona crisis. If I sound like I'm panicking, it's because I am, Alice. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Thanks, Clem. How are you feeling? I'm feeling um, I'm feeling pretty anxious actually, and and I feel you know person on a personal scale quite stupid because I've just spent the last four or five years writing and talking about scenarios that are not dissimilar from what's happening now, and so I feel like maybe I should have been forewarned, but I know that's not rational either because this is unprecedented. Well, and it's also not the catastrophic kind of end of world scenario that you've been writing about your focus has been on climate change and who could have predicted a global pandemic that's true and I think the thing that gives me a lot of comfort about what's happening now is the fact that we still have somewhere to live in a kind of planetary sense 
like we can still grow food. We, you know, our, mm. our climate is stable for the moment. And so that, um, what's happening now is terrifying, but it's less terrifying than not being able to eat or drink water or go outside in, into nature. I think for me, the anxiety spiral has been, and obviously it's the same for a lot of people, the reason that it's been up and down is because we are so adaptable and so we adapt to the new normal as it happens. I mean, we should have really been putting these measures in weeks ago. We know that now. Oh, hindsight. Uh, but this time last week, it, what's happening this week seemed like an impossible scenario. So I guess I'm reassured by the fact that I see people um, adapting and uh, kind of changing their lives to suit the new normal and, and taking up measures that we need to be taking up. And at the same time, I feel afraid thinking, well, what is the world going to, what is our world going to look like next Friday? Mm. But do you think some of the anxiety is deriving from, and I definitely feel like this from a sense of, and maybe this also connects to what I'm saying about feeling personally stupid given my line of work. It connects to this idea of like if we can just um, project forward uh, cleverly enough or with the right information or if we can piece the puzzle together with the information that we've got, then we can somehow control, you know, our own lives or our own circumstance or even mitigate what's coming in some way. And and that's such a huge um, burden to place on ourselves. The reason that I feel like that in some sense is because of social media, mm. because of the influx of information that we've got coming into our lives every day. And so there's this sense of personal responsibility. If I can just apply my intelligence and, and insight into the information that I've been given, then somehow I can prevent what's coming. And that's, um, you know, not rational really. Well, and also it's massively setting ourselves up to fail. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it another, is. I, you know, again, another little apology to everyone and obviously uh, accept a content note on this episode because we're trying to keep it light and funny, but these are worrying times and if our anxiety creeps into the conversation, then I apologise if that makes you more anxious, but it's a, it, an accurate reflection, I think, of how everyone is feeling right now. One of the problems with this scenario is that we don't really have... The only model we have to for how it is playing out is in what's happening in places around us who may be a few weeks or a month or so in the future of where we are, but we don't really know what it looks like six months to a year from now. Maybe we're imagining more catastrophic dire circumstances than will play out. I hope so. I very much hope that that's the case. For our generation, all of our experience with apocalyptic narratives has been through movies or books or some form of pop culture that we can get wrapped up in and enjoy in the moment. But, you know, at the end of the day, we get to close the book or walk out of the cinema and go back to our normal, comfortable ordinary lives and there's a lot obviously about the way that we do live and the way that society itself is structured and set up that drastically needs to change and that change is coming whether we like it or not at the same time I feel like I wish it didn't require these circumstances for us to make the world better Mm, I think that's right. And I think that there's also, um, the, you know, we have apocalyptic narratives and, and those kinds of stories, you know, to guide us or to instill fear in us or however we think about them. So we can look into the future to imagine what our lives might be like as this unfolds. Or we can also look to the past. And I don't know if either of those things are comforting, particularly or informative, but I think, you know, I've heard a lot of people talking about wartime and mm. um, depression and these kinds of things. But I also take comfort in that because we know that those when we look backwards we know that 
people endure hardship and survive it Mm. and that it's possible. And I think about, you know, people like my grandparents or even my dad was born in the post-war period and he's, in a way, kind of spent his whole life um, developing a lifestyle that is uh, inured against the kind of hardship that we're scared of facing. So he grows his own food, he has, he's pretty self-sufficient, he's very frugal, all of these things that seemed kind of daggy until now. Well, I'm very grateful for it because, as you know, his house is my end, <laughs> end game plan with you and the kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful too because to do a life like that requires a lot of sacrifice too. It means that you're living outside the city, you're not engaging in all the things that I love to do like cultural events and going to restaurants and going overseas. Mm. You're just there in that place. But when something like this happens and those things are stripped away, you think maybe that's a more intrinsic way to live. I know that on your Instagram, which is Chow Alice Robinson, you've been um, making apocalyptic reading recommendations, <laughs> which I quite like actually. I I'm going to talk a little bit later about some of the things we've been doing to alleviate our own anxiety, but I I do like that sense of leaning into the absurdity of it or the the reality of it um, through literature. There's something really comforting to me about the idea that all of these scenarios have been imagined so pervasively across time in literature because it kind of makes it feel like, okay, well, just a bunch of fiction writers sat around in their houses and made up these stories. And even if what's happening in the real world is a little bit aligned with that... I don't know, like there's something really, they're just stories, aren't they? And if we can imagine it, then we can probably survive it, I think. Well, and part of that is that in making up the stories, they also made up the survival. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's very so comforting. there is some sense of most apocalyptic novels reflect a drastically changed world, but they do end on a thread of hope because otherwise you would, be completely destroyed by reading them. I think I've been thinking heaps about what makes life worth living and what constitutes a good life in the last week. I mean, there's a lot of talk about loss, that kind of tension between hope and despair or loss and um, survival uh, are present in those stories, but they're also present in our everyday now. And I just think like what makes life worth living, like it brings such attention, especially in a moment where we can't touch or um, where we're meant to be socially isolated from one another. It, it's obvious, but I just feel so much much that life is about the relationships between people and the connections between people and if nothing else then I just really long for a moment in history to arrive where we can touch again. I mean there will come a time of course when we can touch again you know it will probably come sooner than we expect. (laughs) Disclaimer I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Um, I guess I worry about how unusual it will seem to people to reach out and rediscover that touch. On the other hand, I think that there's, as you and I have talked about, a whole wealth of erotic possibility in that. I just wanted to read out the text that you sent me the other day where you wrote, if erotic imaginations are about the forbidden, do you think we're going to see a whole lot of newly chased porn centred around people just really snogging each other? <laughs> and I like that. I, lo- I love that idea, you know, that sort of we're back, going back to the days of where a flash of the ankle was enough to get someone hot under the collar. Um, now it's just a, a flash of a hug or the thought of kissing someone. Or even holding hands. Holding hands, yeah. So risque. So before we get into the questions as well, we're talking, you know, we've been talking about art that gets us through and, and that obviously is one of the, you know, the beautiful upsides of situations like this is that it does bring out the creators and the artists. And I posted this on my Instagram the other day and I'm going to read it again. It's uh, called The Conditional by the poet Ada Limon and she wrote it in 1976. 
Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future, stuck like a bum star. Never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn. Say it doesn't matter. Say that would be enough. Say you'd still want this, us alive, right here, feeling lucky. Fuck, man. Beautiful. So beautiful. I personally find a lot of comfort in poetry like that. I think that it acknowledges the terrible fear and pain and dread and possibility of sadness in the experience of being human, but ultimately points to the wonderful hope that we maintain. And don't you think as well, like when I hear poems like that and or read great literature or any or even listen to music, um, and it gives you an emotional response, like it, it it's the kind of um, cathartic experience of crying in a darkened cinema or something. Mm. We need to be able to cry or to feel something or have a repository for our um, worst fears about what might happen mm. emotionally. Mm. You know, so I think it's like a little p- bit of permission to have a a feeling in like and that's okay yeah it's fine it's fine to feel yeah (laughs) we should all feel as much as we can but I think it's good you know within the context of art it's a safe moment to have that huge surge of feeling and then to put it away yeah a friend of mine said to me yesterday life is short but it's the longest thing you'll ever do That's so beautiful. I liked that, yeah. Okay, we're going to push on with the questions. Uh, I have asked people to feel free to submit any questions they have relating to life in these weird and strange times in particular. So there may be a heavy focus on how to manage issues and anxieties that have popped up in light of the global pandemic. But please also continue to note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Alice are doctors, psychologists, or professionally trained sex therapists. (laughs) We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and temperaments wild enough to imagine what the end of the world looks like. My question is, I have an elderly grandfather who is living with us at the moment and a couple of nights ago as a family we discussed going into isolation for him. I know it's the right decision and I love my grandfather very much but I said goodbye to my boyfriend for who knows how long last night and I feel terrible. He's a medical student, so it's possible that I won't see him for however long the outbreak goes for. And I know his last relationship ended because he didn't want to do long distance. I'm slightly worried that this whole situation might be the end for me and my boyfriend, who's been my first real love and who I don't want to get let go of. Even though I know he was sad, it's getting to me that I cried and he didn't last night, but I know he also thinks that we can last this. So is it bad that I'm having doubts? That sounds so hard. It's heartbreaking. And you know what I also, again, going back to that sense of hope and seeing the silver linings or seeing the beautiful moments in in tragedy or in fear, is that I just love that one of her concerns through this is that her relationship might not survive because that is such a human response. Mm. You know, the world could be literally crashing around us and we will worry that the person that we have a crush on or the person that we're in a relationship with might 
leave us or might not want us. But you know what? The, the one thing about that that gives me comfort is that that's true in everyday life too. Mm. There's no guarantee that any relationship will persevere under any conditions. So in a way, she should put to bed the fear that this will be the end of the relationship. Because if it wasn't this, if that happens, then it might have happened anyway. Like I wouldn't put, um, I wouldn't make this the cause of that fear. We know that relationships come and go. In a way, that's an unburdening thing to me. If if it doesn't survive, then it may not have survived anyway. It's it, you had that great time together, but I don't think that's any reason. There's any reason to think that it wouldn't survive. Do well, you? No, I don't think so. And chiefly because I think that there's nothing that aids erotic longing more mm. than fear and separation. <laughs> and separation and and separation not because of banal oh, I'm going travelling and I'm going to be away for six months or, you know, separation. Well, we're just very busy at work. But (laughs) separation because of a global pandemic is a pretty good... bellows for a relationship I think. One of the things that I've been thinking lots about with relationships and eroticism and erotic imagination and all of these things is something that I'm really terrible at as a human in the world. You have to make yourself a scarce resource to be desirable and I'm very extroverted and candid and earnest so I'm really terrible at that I can't prevent myself from texting endlessly and all of those kinds of things that you're not meant to do I can't abide by any of those rules but um which does me a massive disservice in the world but to to make yourself into a scarce resource because of reasons outside your control um yeah fuels erotic desire so much I think so that's a massive advantage for her yeah and another advantage is that she knows that he's not going to be having sex with anyone else (laughs) (laughs) not even holding their hand yes that's true I think that it can be um you know as as difficult as it and as heart-wrenching as it will be there is an element of you know how when you're sort of your heart is breaking or you're crying over a, a, a romantic pain and you sort of catch yourself in the middle of crying and and almost float outside of your body and watch yourself experiencing the pain of the moment to the point where you may even stand up and go and go and stand in front of the bathroom mirror and watch yourself crying so you can really fully appreciate <laughs> the outpouring of emotional distress that you're experiencing mm. in that in that instant. There's something quite delicious about feeling like your heart is breaking. Yes. But I think it also, it's what you're talking about is that pushing you to the edge of human experience. Like we all want to go to those places. We don't want to live there permanently, but you know, to be able to feel like the four corners of your character, your experience or your self in the world is really, that is delicious. I think you're right. There are things, practical things that our, um, our lovely little sister can implement to maintain the erotic longing in her relationship, letter writing. Yes. You know, perhaps we're going to get back to the, it's not just about texting each other and or sending emails, but we might, well, maybe we won't send letters because we wouldn't want to send them through the postal system, but <laughs> emails, sending emails, sexting, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, nude photography. Who doesn't love sending a very well constructed, artful nude, you know, really kind of make force each other to use your words and describe what you want to do with each other and have phone sex and that distance between two people can be made electric if you let it yeah I think so I think there's going to be a lot of wine and skyping going on in our in the collective near Mm. future don't you a lot of um Yeah. yeah a lot of talking 
in other ways, not in the same room. And I think you're right. I think, I mean, that doesn't discount the pain of that, though. There's something, I mean, the longing that we talked about, the erotic charge that can come from separation, but, you know, that can verge into painful too. That's true. And I think, you know, there's no discounting that, that it will be hard. It's, but an, it, it's the knife edge of anticipation and longing is only delicious for so long. And pleasure and pain pleasure are so pain, yeah. closely aligned, aren't they? And then it just begins to hurt. Mm. Oh, but they're doing it talked, for no- I've talked myself out of my optimism <laughs> on that question. Do you think one of the lovely things about that scenario, if something lovely can be derived from it, is the fact that they're doing it for noble reasons? Like he's a medical student, yep. so you know he he might be at the front lines eventually, and she's trying to protect her grandfather. So that's really beautiful. It is actually the blueprint for a wonderful drama. Yeah, a romantic drama, Atonement I- Part Two. <laughs> Um, no, I think that that's right. You make a really good point. And perhaps to, to our little sister who submitted that question, uh, remembering that I think that you are doing this for the relationship. And I'm not saying that the relationship is broken down because obviously it hasn't, but the relationship has been forced into a necessary disconnect physically. And it's not because of, you know, a lacklustre passion for each other. It's not because you don't love each other. It's because, as Alice says... It's because you have noble intentions to help make the world a better place. Mm. And it just say that something does go wrong and they can't maintain it because it is challenging. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't circle back to each mm. other in the future either. Like I don't think a break has to be permanent. We do survive relationship breakups mm. if that is the inevitability, which I hope it's not. It doesn't, and I agree with you, it doesn't sound like it has to be or that that's even necessarily the portent for the future. If it does happen, there will be another beautiful relationship in your future that you may even be allowed to hold hands in. <laughs> Um, I kind of feel almost excited for these people as we're talking, you know, like it's not a circumstance that they would choose, but then again, connecting in the many different new ways that they're going to have to connect would may not have happened either. So they might learn something new about themselves and each other. You know, the question asker has finished by saying, I know he thinks that we can last this through, which is beautiful. Mm. So romantic. He's not sitting there thinking that, you know, this is going to be the end of you. So I say get on the letter writing by email, get on the texting, Skype with him and ask questions of each other that you would never normally ask in usual circumstances. There's something really liberating about a situation in which we feel like, well, we've got nothing to lose. You know, the world could be ending. We may as well talk about our deep dark feelings and I think also to trust what he's saying Mm. trust him that if he thinks it can work then go into that space together dear big sisters I'm a 25 year old single mum I had a pretty traumatic time with the father of my child but I'm really ready to start dating again Oh no. (laughs) I wanted to ask a guy out and I talked to my mum about it. She was horrified at the thought of me asking out a man, also the fact that he's five years younger than me. I barely know him, but he's very attractive to me. I have low self-esteem, extra weight than when I was in the dating game years ago, and my own mother saying I'm desperate by asking someone out when I'm a woman really stressed me out. What do you think? There's so much in that question to unpack. I think that it's great that you're ready to start dating again. Good for you. You know, single single mums should 
put themselves back out there if they want to. So she's only 25. So she's, Life is yeah. starting, baby. <laughs> yeah, so much to look forward to. I think We both, hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think go for it. I, I I know, you know, I know that there's a cultural kind of impetus towards women not asking men out, but I actually think that's total bullshit. Oh, I agree. I mean, I it's like what it's like marriage. I understand that it it's there and it's a thing people want to do, but I just don't really get it at all. It's like a foreign language to me. The idea of waiting for a man to ask you out is bizarre like why why would you limit your opportunities by sitting there and waiting to be picked off the shelf also if we kind of unpack so like what what is the fear around this idea of women asking men out the the fear is that the man will be turned off because he thinks you're too forward or too available or too have tickets on yourself or any of those kind of connotations which are all about women being too much and um too masculine in some ways too masculine and also there's it sounds like this is what her mother thinks by saying that she's desperate, that there's some belief that women who ask men out are pathetic in some way because if they were worth being with, a man would have already asked them out. And it just is gross. Like it just reinforces that, again, you know, women waiting on the shelf to be picked. And if someone doesn't pick us, then, oh, well, our life's just been a bloody big waste of time, hasn't it? And it also um, requires a kind of, um, if you if you can't voice what you want, if you can't ask someone out, then it means you're required to perform um, non-verbally or in other ways to get their attention, to, to convey that message. I want to be asked out, I'm available, without actually saying it. And I don't think any of us should be engaged in that game. No. Because the work we've got to do is to use our words to ask for what we want. And if this, that's a problem for the man in question or any man, Man, then you don't want to be with that person anyway. I don't think, I mean, she's saying that this man's five years younger than her, so that makes him 20. I doubt very much that he's going to have a problem with a woman asking him out. And you're right, if a man did have a problem with it, then then he's clearly not someone you'd want to date anyway. But just genuinely cannot think of, it would be such a minute percentage of men who would have a problem with that, that it's, it's strange to me that this idea still persists that women need to, as you said, perform this kind of coquettish fluttering of their eyelashes to leave a hint somehow or dropping their hanky on the ground behind them so that a gentleman picks it up for them. It's just so ridiculous. And it really reinforces this, you know, all the things that we're trying to reverse people's ideas on about women's weakness and women's sort of... Um, uh, inability to kind of take control of a situation or and, and also women's manipulation mm. but we shouldn't discount the fact that it can be really hard to do that it can be really hard to ask someone out and oh, to absolutely. do all of these things like that's but your your reason for not doing it shouldn't be because women aren't supposed to ask men out no that's true but I just think for this person like I think back to when I was 25 how I would have found that quite daunting and I didn't have the extra kind of complications of a child in tow and all of these things so I just wonder like I think our advice is correct and I and um useful but you know to think for this young this little sister to think instead of putting her energy into being that coquettish um kind of non-verbal uh desired object she could put it into kind of um preparing herself for being rejected because that's mm-hmm. a possibility and that's okay so one part of the kind of the work that we all have to do is to think i'm allowed to ask and then it's going to be okay if the answer's no 
Yeah, I think that's such wonderful advice, Alice, and it's one of the reasons why I really wanted you to come on the show. Thanks, Clem. We say that men need to learn how to cope with rejection, but it's something that women need to learn as well. The the reasons or what motivates bad feelings around rejection, I think, are generally, broadly speaking, different for men and women. Women tend to think that if they're rejected, it's not because he's a bloody cunt, but because she's disgusting and gross and no one will ever love her. I mean, that's the, that's the narrative that we've kind of been fed about men not wanting women. And it's certainly the one that male trolls use to, to try and silence women in online spaces. It's, oh, well, no one wants you, that kind of thing. So, of course, those fears are completely legitimate. But actually it is a really powerful thing that you can do for yourself to come to terms with the fact that, some people will reject you and that's fine. And it doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean that you're unattractive. It doesn't mean that you have nothing to offer anyone. It just means that that particular person wasn't interested in pursuing a romantic relationship with you. And that is okay. One of the things that, because in our line of work, there's a lot of rejection. It's a different kind of context, but as a writer, you have to kind of develop strategies for rejection or you'll be completely crushed to death in like the first five minutes. And one of the things I often think, and I think it applies to dating also is you know I don't need everyone to love my work or love me I just need one like <laughs> the one who's going to publish it and sometimes I think um, every rejection that you incur in a writing sense just one less that you have to get before you get to the one that's going to say yes. Maybe that's why we're so good at rejection because we do work in a field where people can literally reject us Every day. day. (laughs) Every day. And not just reject us in terms of publishing our work, but also telling us how much they hate our work too. I just wanted to touch on a couple of the other things that our little sister has mentioned that I, I want to reassure her of. And that is, yes, your body's changed. You've had a child. You feel like your body is different. Um, from before you had that child and from before you, your long-term relationship ended. Um, And those can be, I want to validate those feelings and those fears. I don't want to just tell you, Mm. you know, well, it's wonderful your body's created another human and that's that's all that matters. Or you should love and honour your body. Of course, I would hope that we could all learn how to do that. But I also know that it's not quite that simple. So I want to acknowledge and validate your feelings of insecurity around your body and just, I guess, tell you that that it's okay to feel that way. I don't think that enough people really kind of accept legitimacy of women having those complicated feelings around their changing bodies, particularly after they've had a you know, a child or more than one child. The feminist take is that we're supposed to reject patriarchal expectations of beauty standards and bodily standards, and that's obviously something that we should do and we need to dismantle patriarchy's expectations of women in general. Bodies are such personal things and the experience of childbirth, for many of us, such a traumatising event and a life-changing... Um, it, it's difficult to try and figure out how to be at home in a body that you thought you understood but that is so radically changed. And I think that, you know, people talk about the body as being having the memories of trauma remain in it and that's true for women who've gone through childbirth as well but it's not something that we're allowed to talk about because it's still that narrative of like the only thing that matters is a healthy child but for many of us who might have had traumatic births or you know long-term complications afterwards it is a site of pain and anxiety and complicated feelings and it's all right for you to acknowledge that in choosing a partner though what I would hope is that you 
would not allow their feelings about your body or if they have if they express negative feelings about your body to make you feel like you are any less of a person deserving of love and respect because you're not you deserve all of those things Mm, that's well said I'd also tell your mother to back off and let you go out and get some well Mm. some sexy texts and what if you are desperate also like I hate the idea of this um you know the mother's advice you know that she's this daughter's desperate in some way like we're all entitled to have that aspect of our life our sex lives um be, be central to our lives yeah and to pursue it you know, respectfully and consensually, but however we see fit. Mm. Who knows? Maybe she is envious of you because you are 25 and you've had a child and you've still got your whole life ahead of you. I do think it's quite beautiful that 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 little sister has a kind of relationship with her mother where she feels she can raise these things though, Mm. Um, even if the mother's advice is a bit punitive. That's mm. lovely. But maybe you can find other people who will advise you, spur you on instead of <laughs> um, curtailing your freedoms. Okay, we have come to the last question mm-hmm. of today. I always have this grand plan of, you know, shooting through five or six or seven questions, which m- maybe. We will do one day, but um, I don't know. I also quite like, I'd be interested in listener feedback on this. Do you prefer shorter answers, snappy, getting to the point, or do you like us to explore and tease out the nature of the question? My impulse is to tease out the nature of a question and speak to bigger issues around it. But hey, you guys are the ones listening, so let me know what you like. You are listening to the Big Sister Hotline with Clementine Ford, and my guest this week is Alice Robinson. If you are enjoying the podcast, please do share it with your friends. We've got nothing to do these days except consume things on the internet so go and leave a rating for it on apple podcasts if you like it please um or you know share it from spotify or radio.com or podchaser or any anywhere where you listen to good content okay last question of the day Hey, big sisters i was wondering if you have any tips for dealing with anxiety particularly during this time i have ptsd and anxiety and both have been pretty well under control for ages but the virus stuff happening has knocked me for six I've got two kids, eight and 12 years old, and one of them has asthma. On Wednesday, my husband lost his casual chef job of four years due to the virus impacting the business. I've been working from home this week and have kept the kids home, but it's not a permanent thing. And I told them that my daughter was sick, but eventually I'll probably have to go back to work. My contract is set to expire on the 31st of this month, and they've told me they're trying to extend me, but nothing is certain yet. I know I'm not the only one struggling. We all are, but it would be nice to hear how others are coping. Hope you're okay too. Wow, that sounds really hard. And it also sounds like what you're grappling with is the, is indicative of all of the things that other people are really worried about too. Mm. What are we going to do about our children, our work? <clears throat> How will we pay our rent, our yeah. mortgages? What will the world look like in a month's time from now? All very legitimate <clears throat> sources of anxiety. And if you have a history of anxiety and PTSD, as this little sister does, then that is going to be magnified right now. There's no easy answer, unfortunately. I wish that we could wave a magic wand and say this is how you can remove the stresses in your life, but it's impossible at this point in time. I guess for me I go back to what it is that brings me comfort in moments like this and also what instills in me and maintains and feeds that sense of hope. And for me that's things like poetry, um, listening to music, dancing, 
um, singing songs, playing, uh, speaking to friends and trying not to focus on what's going on, but also allowing ourselves to talk about what's going on and experience that anxiety in an in a non-judgmental space. I think that's really good advice. I think it's really hard to know what to do. I am taking a lot of comfort and um, a kind of um, um, psychological approach to my anxiety in the sense of feeling like a little framework around it where when I start to feel anxious I think collectively like this is not a problem that's impacting only my family or mm. only me and it, in a way it's not up to me to solve it it goes back to that kind of sense of individualism that I was talking about before um, a sense that if we if I just had all the, pe- the puzzle pieces lined up then I could solve this somehow for myself and I feel like obviously this problem is bigger than me or this little sister or any of us and it isn't but we're not beholden um, to resolve it or to solve it for ourselves there's no way we can kind of outsmart it individually Mm. I don't think so to me that's very comforting because it kind of is an unburdening of personal responsibility there's things Mm. of course I'm not saying that there aren't things that we can all do to make our lives and our communities safer and to minimize the impact that's right but in terms of our psychological well-being, like we kind of have to surrender a little bit and to put trust, even though it's scary. And I'm not, and I, of all people, am not particularly trustful of the government, for example, or, or of systems, um, so, uh, cultural or societal systems. But I think in a moment like this, we do have to kind of band together and think we're not in it alone. And those systems are there to protect citizens, mm. because the alternative is to think, you know, it's it will we can see the outcome of the opposite thinking in the way that people are hoarding toilet paper and supplies that's a mistrust in those systems and I understand where that comes from especially as a um, writer of dystopian fiction but uh, weirdly I feel like now's the moment to put our faith in them to some extent. I, I, I agree also that there is some necessity in surrender and once you surrender to whatever happening, once you surrender to the idea that you cannot hold the wave back, you can only be in control of how you manage what happens after the wave, then I find, I personally find that quite liberating. And, you know, that's a a tactic that I've used in managing anxiety in general over the years. And it's something that my old mindfulness um, therapist used to talk to me about was noticing, you know, and I don't want to minimise people's stress and anxiety about very real issues right now, but there is some practicality in observing the moment rather than trying to stop the moment. Because if you try and stop the moment, you'll drive yourself even madder than you feel already and get even more stressed out. The times that I've felt the panic rising in me this week has been when I've indulged feelings of wanting to control what's happening around me and realising that I couldn't control it. You know, another thing that I've been doing as well, though, is... Um, I mean, apart from I've been making silly videos on Instagram and having a lot of fun kind of like flexing while I can maintain some level of optimism, flexing that those different parts of creativity and, you know, doing live Instagram videos and speaking to out into the ether and knowing that people are listening and asking questions and the little feed on the bottom has been weirdly reassuring. But another thing that I've been doing that might sound weird to people, but also might be helpful is I've been imagining what a post-apocalyptic world would look like and how um, hierarchies will be destroyed in it. Like, I think it is really funny to think that you could stumble on, you know, a community of 
people who are just trying to survive out in the wilderness and it could include like really formally famous Hollywood actors <laughs> who suddenly now have no privilege. Mm. You know, what will the Kardashians do? Well, they are real people, so presumably they will have to survive in one way or another if it comes to that, and that is a hilarious thought in some ways, not to undermine their very real humanity, of course. What can be helpful is to is to have a practical plan. You know, don't allow yourself to get overly anxious by being too doomsday, but say, right, if we needed to do this, what would we do? That might return to some people. It won't be helpful for some people. It it will stoke their anxiety further. But for people who do need to have some semblance of control, having a list that they can even just put on the fridge and just look at the list and think to themselves, the list tells me what I need to do if things get to the point that I'm fearful of. One of the things that's really helping me also is I saw someone tweeted something about um, if you are looking after children at this time and they're at home or you're in isolation, it's enough to just keep them alive. And I saw that tweet and I thought, oh, that's very comforting because I think there's also something about being a particular kind of woman where you're working, you've got kids, you're functioning in this um, neoliberal capitalist society, trying to do all the things like this idea of having it all and being it all. And, you know, that's the kind of the context that this pandemic is kind of smashing into in term, for me anyway and that's people are Im- suddenly realizing that women do a lot of things <laughs> yes after children so much but to think then within that the context of now this pandemic that kind of mindset is coming mm. along into this new space and so now we're also meant to be homeschooling and like with all the the tools of the Montessori like mindset and fuck their education right now honestly <laughs> if they're, like, they're getting an education by observing the end of the world yeah and I just think this idea like keeping them alive like wow, that's something I can definitely do. And it really just lowers the stakes. We don't have to do everything perfectly or even do everything. We just have to kind of um, hold our nerve at this Mm. moment, I would say, because I think also when we're considering all our options and trying to control things or not control them or calm our minds or make decisions or make plans, whatever it is that we're naturally kind of veering in the direction of, none of it can happen um, in a positive way or even a useful and constructive way if we're panicked. So Mm. it seems to me that that adage of kind of... um, keeping calm and carrying on is really useful at this moment. I really love what you said there about holding our nerve and I'm going to file that away in my brain and when I do feel panicked or anxious, I'll remind myself of that. You know, now's the time to hold your nerve. I kind of shared a fantasy with you before about us escaping to the country if we need to and just letting the kids roam. You know, we were saying what? how do we take care of our kids all day and keep working And, and I said, well, we don't. We just let them roam the countryside for, you know, or the garden at least until they're allowed to roam the countryside again. And they can just go out in the morning and come home and they know that they're they're not allowed to come home until six o'clock and just play. Well, the magic faraway tree narratives never would have existed if that wasn't required, I don't think, mm. because I'm sure that story comes out of this idea of sending kids away from London during the war and definitely the railway children. A lot of beautiful literature comes out of these hard times. Speaking of beautiful literature and beautiful poems, I think that's a perfect opportunity to bring this episode of Big Sister Hotline to an end. And I'd like to do that by reading a poem that um, 
Alice and I both love and that she shared again the other day and, and I shared from your page. Some people may hear this or experience this. Certainly when they read it, they found it to be, some people felt it was very pessimistic, but I think it's ultimately a poem about how humans continue to try and continue to want things to be good, despite all the challenges that may be thrown in their way. It's called Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Alice, would you like to read it? You read it, Clem. Okay. Life is short, though I keep this for my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Alice Robinson, thank you so much for helping me to make this episode of Big Sister Hotline as beautiful as it could possibly be. Your advice is sage and thoughtful and wonderful. And I encourage everyone who is out there isolating themselves to please get online and buy copies of Alice's two books, Anchor Point and then The Glad Shout. She's a really, truly brilliant writer. When I read The Glad Shout, I was furious at her for being so much more talented than me. I love you. Thanks, Clem. And just a final thought. Bertolt Brecht wrote... In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline. I'm Clementine Ford, serving Big Sister Real Talk for all the things you're too embarrassed to tell your therapist. Send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at clementine underscore Ford. Big Sister Hotline. The phone line is open. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.